give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 9 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I am your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. Now, <clears throat> I'm, my goal right now is to just make it through this introduction without coughing, because as soon as I press record, I had a little bit of a coughing fit. So if you hear me clear my throat or, you know, make weird sounds, that's just because I'm a podcast professional, and that's what we do. Um, I already feel weird off the bat because I said this is episode 9. <coughs> Excuse me. I said this is episode 9. I've recorded a lot more than 9 episodes. In fact, I just recorded 9 episodes this past summer. Did a weekly track-by-track breakdown of the Injustice for All album leading to his 30th anniversary. So we did 9 weeks in a row. Now we're back to the more traditional format of 1 or 2 episodes a month. Numbered episodes. And here we are with episode 9. And I'm very excited because I'm joined by a very special guest who, um, for the last several months, I've been hoping would come onto the show. He is a award-winning journalist. He has written for Billboard, uh, Guardian, Noisy, Vice, and God knows what else. Mr. Richard S. He, thank you so much for coming on. Hello, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now... You're in Australia, correct? Yes, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, the deep south. <laughs> and I am in Connecticut. So it is 8.17 p.m. there. It is morning there, correct? Yep, yep. So we, you are starting your day. I am ending my day. I think no yeah. matter what, there's no better way than to talk about Metallica. No, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Richard, in addition to being a writer, you know, and for all the various publications that you've written for, you're also, I know, a musician and a producer. So I'm just very curious, um, it, you know, for those of people who are listening who do not know, your writing is, runs the gamut. You, I, you know, whether it's the new Ariana Grande album or something about St. Anger, hint, hint, wink, wink, where we're going to be going, um, you, you really are uh, really a writer of pop culture. And so I'm just very curious how your kind of upbringing and whatnot uh, led to you wanting to be a musician, producer, writer, the role that pop music and metal and especially Metallica maybe have played a role in that journey. Cool. So um, without giving you my entire life story, I guess I would say I started learning classical piano when I was around five. And, um, you know, I was all right. Wasn't the most devoted student. But um, I hit around 12 and, you know, kind of grew out of it, wanted to take up the guitar, was getting into, like, rock music and heavier stuff at the time. Um, I was about 13 in 2003, so that was kind of the... the uh, golden age of new metal, shall we yes. say. Um, Were you yeah, a new metal I, fan? Um, yeah, I've, yeah, I'll defend some of it, sure. Yeah. That's like another... I'm, I'm not here on. to pass judgment. I'm just... <laughs> Continue, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but like, I remember getting into Linkin Park and through them getting into bands like Nightwish, Dream Theater, and of course Metallica. And 
I think I first heard, I think I first heard Saint Anger, must have been on Channel V, which is like our MTV here. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have seen a video for that and the Unnamed Feeling back when they first came out, and um, I don't know how I really processed them at the time. Like I'd heard of Metallica, but like I didn't really know their significance. I didn't know it was like, you know, a comeback after half a decade or anything. So, you know, I bought the album listened to it, thought, okay, this is kind of weird. Like, it's very loud. I like it. <laughs> uh, you know, I kind of let it lie for a while. And I found myself, like, like I think a lot of people getting back into Metallica more as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of grow up with the band, right? And so when you're younger, maybe you identify with Kill 'Em All and the kind of, you know, fuck yeah, like, alcoholica stuff, right? Right. But the only get... Um, the more you relate to James as a man and like his maturation and um, yeah so in 2013 I found myself writing about St. Anger for it was a series called Defending the Maligned on a website <laughs> so you know we all picked something to defend and I picked St. Anger not knowing how much I would learn to love it yeah. I thought, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a flawed album. You know, maybe it has some redeeming moments. Then I started listening to it again, and I became obsessed. Um, so I wrote about it in late 2013. I think early 2016, I did a ranking of Metallica's albums for a site called Fast Ladder, which no longer exists, RIP. But um, <laughs> I think I put St. Anger at number five then. Hmm. Um, it was like... I think from the top down, it was like Master of Puppets, Ride, Justice. No, maybe St. Anger was number four. It was a St. Anger, Black wow. Album, um, Death Magnetic, Load, Reload. Lulu might have been above Reload, actually. Really? <laughs> that yeah, could be another conversation. I, yeah. I was going to say, that could be another episode, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't have nearly as many thoughts on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> So this whole time, um, in the last, like, four or so years, I've been trying to get at, like, all my thoughts on St. Anger. Um, I tried in late 2016. I pitched the piece to Noisy, and, like, I just couldn't get it out. Mm-hmm. And so I started this column series called uh, Poptimism Gone Wrong, which is kind of... Um, it's a deep dive into uh, certain famous artists and, like, why culturally they're so disliked. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the first one was on Iggy Azalea and Bad Baby and the phenomenon like white girl rap. Mm. Um, not really defense, more like a just an interrogation of it. Second one was on Taylor Swift. Third one on Fallout Boy's entire career. That was like 9,000 words. So, <laughs> <laughs> after that, San Anger, which I think is 7,500 words, which is a bit under what I thought it'd be. Yeah. <laughs> I... But, um,. You probably could have kept yeah, going. <laughs> no, I might, I might still write a book. Cause like, seriously, um, yeah, there's still so much. Like it never ends. Um, I, I find it very interesting. So I think you're the, you're definitely the first person I've talked to on the show that your yeah. entry point was Saint Anger. Um. Oh no, not quite. I'd heard In a Sandman and I okay. think Pops and a few things before then. So kind but, of like um, a lot of the standard stuff. 
Yeah, but Sananga might have been the first album that I bought, and that wasn't straight after it came out. It was like 04, 05, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so I remember it. So today I reread your article, you know, which we'll dive into a little in a little bit, and um, I re-listened to Saint Anger, and you know these songs I've heard hundreds or thousands of times by now, um, but it's been a while since I listened to the album from start to finish. Usually Metallica just is like on a shuffle, and you know, I'm a I'm a shuffle nerd, so whether it's Metallica or all my music, just it shuffle and surprise me, but. Uh, this was the first time I, in a in a little bit where I listened to the album from start to finish, and it's what's funny how uh, common it sounded to me at this point because I was sort of flashed back to June two thousand three. I remember because it was my last month in high school. I was a senior about to graduate. This album came out, and I remember hearing Saint Anger on the radio, the the single, and just being like, "What the fuck." <laughs> Is that? Yeah. And uh, Metallica was my all-time favorite band before them, you know. And uh, I just remember being like, "It sounds like Metallica, but it sounds like something completely different." To me, there were like some elements of like modern metal mixed in there, but it was just such a weird, mm. uh, such a weird alien. thing. Yes, alien is a perfect way of saying. It. See, this is why I have a writer on the show to <laughs> feed me what to say that sounds much more articulate than I, than I am. <laughs> I'm not usually the one doing the talking, so. <laughs> but, you know, so you kind of uh, mentioning that and saying, like, how sort of weird it was, that stood out to me, kind of sparked that memory of being like, yeah, it's, it's a weird record. And, uh, you know, so just to reference the article, since I feel like we're going to be referencing throughout the whole thing, um, do you want to explain sort of what it is? I know you referenced it already, but just, uh, it was on Red Bull Music, correct? Um, yeah, it's on redbull.com. So if you just Google Red Bull San Anger, I mean, it'll be the only result. Yeah. Really. So the headline, uh, and I'm going to, I, I tweeted it out and put it on Facebook before at Metallica's pod on both, and I'll be sure to definitely put it out there again. And we'll try to do a link even in the description to the article. Um, but for those of you who might not have read the article yet, it's 15 years on, St. Anger, Metallica's final masterpiece. Very controversial. That is a bold, <laughs> bold statement. So, just so you know... But also, it's not, it's not clickbait, because I actually believe it. <laughs> so. Alright, so let's start there. Um, you know, in the time since St. Anger... We've got Lulu, which you already mentioned, which is not a true Metallica record. It's really a Lou Reed record that they Soft. contributed to. That's how mm -hmm. I view that album. Uh, so the Agreed. the two true Metallica albums since then are Death Magnetic and Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And I think in the eyes of a lot of Metallica fans, those albums were, you know, Death Magnetic was sort of a return to form for a lot of people. And then some people started complaining about oh, the songs are too long, or the production is too loud, or, or the mix, rather, is too loud. And then, I feel like with Hardwired, which, you know, eight years later, they come out with this album, I feel like has been the most positive response they've received to it from uh, in an album in many, many years, probably since the Black album. 
Yeah. But you, it is your opinion that Saint Angel is their final masterpiece. Can you build on that a little bit? Sure. So, um, I feel like Death Magnetic and Hardwired, to me, they're very enjoyable records, right? It's the appeal of them is hearing Metallica in full flight, like the way they used to sound. You know, there's no one who has the chemistry of James and Kirk's guitars with Lars's drums. Like, there's only one band that sounds like that. And there is a kind of magic yeah. to it, right? But I don't feel that Death Magnetic and Hardwired, to me, like, emotionally, they're a bit more surface level than San Anger. Like, when James is singing about, like, my apocalypse or whatever, I don't believe it in the same way that I did when he sang Fight Fight with Fire all those years mm. ago. Like, he's not the same person. And I don't blame him for that. But, like, I think there was a writer, uh, Jim DeRogatis, of the Chicago Sun-Times, who described Death Magnetic as a post-millionaire album. Mm -hmm. And it almost... Um, it's not the first Metallica record that feels that way to me. Like, Load and Reload are kind of loose. It's them having fun. But to hear Metallica with their signature sound, but, like, looser and without the same kind of emotional pull... To me, you can really hear the difference. And right. It's not to knock those two records. I really enjoy them. But to me, San Anger is like, I feel like they put their entire heart and soul into it. Maybe too much, if you ask some people. Yeah. But to me, they're like very, very honest, very confronting records. Like, you can hear what James and the band was going through during some kind of monster. You can hear like every bit of angst mm -hmm. and self loathing in the record itself. Um, and yeah, I, that, but like sonically, um, there's really like no other record that sounds like it. Like totally. I can name reference, but um, certainly not in metal, you know. No, I think like you said, Alien, right? It's just especially yeah. in the metal world, and I feel like when you listen to you know as a metalhead, as somebody, I mean, I listen to a lot of different types of music, but as somebody who grew up listening to metal and hard rock primarily, um. I think you get used to this standard sound, the standard production, the standard tones, and uh, it's very rare that an album comes out that just really shakes up what it sounds like in, in terms of uh, tone and production and what have you. And I feel like, you know, for better or for worse, St. Anger definitely shook things up. So you might not like the production, you might not like the tone, you might not like the mixing, but you cannot argue that it was completely outside the box. And it has a sense of purpose. Like, when you consider that it was produced by Bob Rock, who made the Black Album, which is, like, one of the lushest, like, most expensive-sounding yeah. metal albums of all time. Still very heavy, right? But yeah. that was produced to within an inch of its life. And then you go from that to St. Anger, which is, like... It's been described as a garagey sound, which it kind of is, but it's, like, you know a garage on Mars or something. Yeah. Just because it's very in your face, but um, it doesn't sound, like, realistic. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's actually part of its appeal. Um, there's a big, like, there's a reason that metal has its kind of conventional production choices, right? Like, for right. example, usually the drums are pretty dry because um, you don't want them to, like, interfere with the mix of the guitars and the bass, right? You can't have, like a heavy bass drum and, like, a detuned guitar kind of both emphasize at the same time because they'll conflict. Absolutely. Right. 
Um, and so St. Anger kind of throws that out the window. It's like, it's one of the few metal albums that really replicates the feeling of like playing a drum kit in a room. It's like surround sound almost. You can yeah. hear like the tone of drums and you can hear like how hard Lars is hitting them. Which yeah. I think it's very, very for metal. Yeah, I think there's definitely a big human element to it. Um, mm. and, and I think that's something that is lost sometimes, especially in the digital age, where everything is mm. so polished or even just digitalized itself, you know? And, you know, I was making a comment, so I just did the Ensemble for All series where I was looking at all the songs of the Justice album, and I made a comment a couple times throughout the nine-episode series that like one of the things I like is when you listen to the song, you can hear the fingers slide on the guitar strings, like uh, a little thing like that. And I feel like it makes it feel human. There are humans playing this, and agreed. I think that Saint Anger does capture that. But I think on the one of the ironic things is is that as loose as it is, and as human as it feels, in some ways. It, I think it's one of their most produced albums because it, once you research like the process of how they compose the songs, which is like a lot of cutting and pasting and Pro Tools and stuff, it, in that way, it's, it's very modern and produced in a sense. And kind of artificial, because I mean, the way they did it was they had the whole band jamming on these songs and these riffs and like vocal sections during the day. And then everyone would go home. Like James would have to leave early because um, once he was out of rehab, like he couldn't be in the studio too yeah. long. He had to be with. And so Lars and Bob Rock would put together the songs at night, and they'd work out the structures. And I think it was, I suspect it was Lars who um, decided to make the song structures so circular. Like there's a quote um, I found in the article where he says, "When I listened back to the mixes, I felt like it was about." pummeling the listener, like almost taking an out on them. Um, and, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Well, I, I, going to that point, I was just reading, um, it was probably in your article, I had read it before somewhere, but it kind of brought it back to life, but I was, I read your article when it first came out, because I'm a nerd, and I do uh, almost a daily search of Metallica in the news, because I'm like, alright, what's going on in Metallica world? And your article popped up one day, and, uh, I was like, this seems like a really fascinating read. So I read it on my train ride to work. And, you know, it, it surprised me that it took me the whole train ride. Because <laughs> it's a lengthy yeah. essay. There's a lot to sink your teeth into. And then this morning I reread it to have it fresh in my head. And, uh, you know, basically the goal, at least from Lars's perspective, was we, wanted, we want to punish the listener. We want to make mm. an unrelenting record. In terms of uh, its heaviness, its rawness, its length, like 75 minutes, they just pummel you. Mm. And it's just a very punishing record in a lot of ways. You know, it's not like you're putting on black metal or death metal with these crazy screams and blast beats. Mm. It's, it, but it's punishing in a, in a different way, in its, uh, how it sounds sonically, I think. And also just the abrasiveness of it all. Mm. Yeah, it's very in your face. Yeah. I think of like the intro to Dirty Window, you know, it's like that snare clanging. And mm -hmm. it's like whether you like it or not, 
you are either confronted by it or you want to like look away. Sure. And I think one of the things that too makes it so punishing is that there's a lot tying sort of into what you were saying before with like the human element. There's a lot of things that just feel very on the surface, like the lyrics, for example. Um, I feel like a lot of James's lyrics and a lot of albums are, you know, kind of subtle or metaphoric or what have you. Not all of them, but a good chunk of them. And I feel like on Saint Anger, a lot of them are just more on the surface. Not that they're not open to interpretation at all, but it's just more of a. It, there's only so many ways you can read to, into a man screaming kill at the top of his lungs as the band just pummels you in the background, you know? It's not an intellectual thing, I would say, with Sanger. Um Like a lot of their 80s lyrics, uh, I think are very intellectual, like, by the standards of that era's metal. You know, Metallica have been considered, like, the thinking man's metal band sure. in the past. And Anger, it's like they're not holding anything back there's like no pretenses and like you could argue that the lyrics some of the lyrics read badly on paper but like i'll give you an example um my lifestyle determines my death style yeah like funny line right but also the, if you think about it um it's a reference to to live is to die mm-hmm. it's like the same thing lifestyle yeah. death style to, is to die and i think yeah. a lot of the album is about um it's in conversation with Metallica's past, like musically and lyrically. I don't feel like they're repeating themselves in the same way that mm-hmm. I some of the later albums. Interesting. And I think, yeah. I think that too, uh, it, I think that was one of the big complaints about the record. Besides the overall sound, I remember a lot of people complaining about the lyrics. Like, oh, James doesn't know how to write anymore. But it's just like, I feel like that was the purposeful intent of that record. So some of the lyrics are a little bit more repetitive or sort of, um, you know, like, like, or might be cheesy on paper. Mm. Uh, you know, like, as you said, like, my lifestyle determines my death style. That was a, that line that always people want to hook into. Or if you go into a song like My World, like, the motherfuckers got in my head. There's nothing really poetic or subtle about that. But I, I think it's just keep the, it was purposeful to keep it on the surface and just to get it all out. It was like a purge. Yeah, it reflects the state of mind at the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I think that's the most important thing, too, about this album, in my opinion, is just understanding it in context. Like, what was going on with the band before and during? You know, because before St. Anger... They were probably at the lowest point in their entire career. Mm, yeah, definitely. They just lost Jason. Um, so here's, here's an example. Like, you're a pro wrestling fan, right? I am. Yeah, so am I. So um, Excellent. Great minds. <laughs> great minds. <laughs> so um, here's a little like way to interpret it, right? In the 80s, Metallica were like the biggest baby faces, the biggest good guys in metal, right? Right. They were like the little underground metal band that could. Yes. Um, maybe they were like heels or bad guys to, you know, your parents or whatever, because, you know, they don't want to hear Kill Em All. And so Metallica with the Black Album, they became pretty much the biggest band in the world, right? They became baby faces to like all, but some of, you know, the underground metal fans who mm. thought they'd trade them initially. But after Black Album, 
you know, all over the 90s, you see Metallica doing kind of like, it's like a very gradual heel turn, right? Alienating <laughs> so many of the original fans. Like, if it wasn't yes. Load or Reload, then it was, um, you know, the Napster incident. It was yeah. um, alienating Jason enough to make him walk away from the band that he loved. Yeah. Um, so, it, like, all of that had come to a head by 2000 and two you know when james goes to rehab and everything yeah but i want to say that like 2003 new metal was kind of ending right it was kind of the end of what was also like the worst ever period for traditional metal yeah um like jewish priest um actually no i made not already come back by 2000 like they were really the first i would say though there was that stretch of time but between like the mid 90s and a little bit to the early 2000s. And a band like Priest, it took them a little bit longer than that, really, to make a comeback, you know? You know, Metallica hadn't released an original record in, like, five years, five, six years. Reload was, like, 97, right? Yeah, 97. So everyone's expecting Metallica to, you know, return to their roots. There's, there's a lot of press that says, you know, this is the most savage Metallica record ever. Yeah. Everyone's expecting a face turn, expecting Metallica <laughs> to be the good guys again, right? But no, then you get this album that's kind of recognizable. It's like, it gives you a little bit of what you want. Yeah. But close, like this bizarre, you know, clanging, like conventionally unmetal production. And so I think for so many fans, that was like the ultimate betrayal it's almost not even about the sound of the album itself it's like what it represents mm -hmm. you know, i think i wrote something like um people have said a lot of things about saint anger but it's almost like whatever saint anger is this is what we don't want metal to be right it's a line in this yeah and so metallica kind of finally completed their face turn in 2008 with their fanatic yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost been, they haven't been embraced on the same level since I want to say even though like even though like they're still quite beloved you know like James can go on Instagram post like his you know <laughs> dad and stuff. Yeah. we can I, kind of relate to that piece. it's not the same as it was in the 80s though like no movie, but. but I think too part of that too is just a reflection of how the industry's changed too you know like you're not going to have an MTV playing music videos, never mind a new Metallica video, you know? It, so a lot of it is just now... It's kind of gone back to what it was in the 80s, where it's like, you got to put on the live shows, you got to have positive word of mouth again, you got to have somebody that says, hey, the new, the new Metallica album is pretty sweet, you should go check it out, you know? Unless if you're actively seeking it out online, which a lot of people are mm -hmm. for that band, but not everybody. Yeah, it won't just, like, come to you. Right, exactly. So you made a really interesting point I want to go back to for a moment. Um, by the way, I love the wrestling comparisons. Um, I hope that everybody listening got that. Um, I think, you know, in wrestling. the... <laughs> What's that? Everything is wrestling, as they say. <laughs> that's true. If, if it's not Metallica, it's wrestling. Yeah. I think that's the old <laughs> saying. A wise man once said. <laughs> But um, if I think, you know, going back to your point, in the 90s, Metallica became the band to hate. And because I think a lot of people from the underground felt betrayed by that, uh, by their success. And uh, 
And then Load and Reload came out. That whole era happened. And God forbid they cut their hair short. You know, grown-ass men wanted to get a haircut. Uh, and then you add in, like, the the Load album with, like, the Calvin Klein-type photo shoot. And it's just... And they're wearing... You know, Kirk's wearing the eyeliner, the black nail polish. And for metalheads, it can all be very jarring. Uh, and then... Mm. So they became the band to hate in a lot of ways. And uh, I remember there was even a website out for a little bit, MetallicaSucks.com. It was like in the very early days of the internet, and uh, I, I don't know if it still exists, uh, but uh, it was definitely out there. It was definitely a thing. And uh, so I, I bring that up only because I wondered, you know, St. Anger, as we've been talking about, was a very jarring, surprising album. I wonder if it would be, as, if people would hate it as much if some of that hate was not already built in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wrote in my article that I think if you approach it with an open mind, um, it will, like maybe eventually after a long time, reward you. But um, yeah. you're right, it is, it is a lot about preconceptions. Like, for example, um, a lot of people say that Metallica went alternative during Load and Reload. But I think a lot of that's to do with marketing. Like, the music isn't yeah. alternative at all. Like, there's maybe a little bit of, like, Alice in Chains influence there, but for the most part, it's Metallica playing blues rock, playing yeah, this kind of southern... It's, it's, it, to me, it's more um, 70s hard rock than anything, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, a lot of that was to do with image. But, um, no, I think the controversy with San Anger is just, like, I feel like they made an, an album that, in some ways, is very true to the spirit of metal, right? It's very cathartic, it's angry, but it's not those things in a way that's traditionally kind of valued yeah. among metal. It's almost like, it's not a controlled kind of anger. Like metal is about control and like wanting to be the best possible version of yourself, right? So it's like admiring, you know, a great musician who is the mastery of their instrument. Um, it's like new metal is a bit different in that sense because like a lot of new metal was about self-loathing and like, Mm -hmm. A kind of uncomfortable, like internal darkness. Like Korn were really the first to do that. And yeah. I, I don't ever want to say that San Anger is new metal because I don't think, I don't think it. It almost doesn't exist within time, right? It's not an album that to me is driven by trends, um, just because it's so weird. But there is a little <laughs> bit of that kind of like uncontrollable. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a forty-year-old man, James Hetfield, admitting that like he has no control over his demons. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of the fans at the time maybe weren't ready or, like, didn't want to accept that message. You know, we want Hetfield to be our hero. Yeah. We want to look up and not think that he has, you know, the same problems as us, but, like, worse. Right. So yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. I have the <laughs> same problems with us except worse. Well, I don't know. I might be worse at now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that brings up two... That brings up two points, because um, I was actually going to ask you about if you felt there was a new metal influence there, because I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. So this is the first time I'm ever going to um, really uh, slam Metallica. I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Um, right. You know, like if you take the song St. Anger and, 
You know, the, you flush it out. You flush it out. I remember people thinking, like, oh, that sounds like Linkin Park. Like, the, the, the rhythmic chant of it, you know, had that feel. Um, you can argue that, like, some of the dissidence is more uh, in the, it's a bassier sounding album that they've ever done, which, you know, could bring comparisons to a corn or um, some of the... System of a Down. I think yes, Lost Side System of, of a Down. It, 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 I, like the sudden changes, like an all within my hands, when it's just like heavy and then it just goes really clean there for a moment. You know, that to me is like, oh, that reminds me of like Chop Suey or something by System of a Down. So I, I feel like you could make a strong argument that there is an influence there in some ways. Um, and the biggest thing, too, is the no guitar solos, right? So I'm just playing devil's advocate. Do you have a, a thought? On that? Do you, I mean, you kind of said you, do you hear any of that in there? Do you, do you think it's a, played a strong think, impact in the making of that record or no? I think new metal was kind of, it was in the air at the time. It was really inescapable unless you hunkered down and decided we're going to make a traditional metal record with no new metal influences, right? It was yeah. there. To me... I feel like Korn opened the floodgates for the idea of, you know, metal bands that are that really write about self-loathing in a very personal way. Because most metal is a bit more detached, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily I am the singer expressing my feelings. It's kind of in character or fantastical. And Korn, Korn were really the first to do that, like him or not. Um, so I, I do think there's a little bit of that in San Anger. Um, yeah. A lot of the bridges, like the bridge in Invisible Kid, or in the unnamed feeling, or like yeah. James kind of going in, into fetal position. Mm. Um, it's not like a pleasant sound, but you know, it is what they were feeling at the time. <laughs> and um, as for like the music, the musicality, um, yeah, it's detuned. I actually hear a bit more like Queens of the Stone Age influence. Yeah, well, if anything. I think that, you know, you could make a uh, comparison to this, like some sludge metal or doom metal, whatever you want to call yeah. it in there. And... Oh. Yeah. Because um, for the most part, they're tuned down to C, um, which is like same tuning as System, same as Queens of the Stone Age. But like, I hear a bit of like bluesy influence, actually. Yeah, in absolutely. Guitar, the way they would bend notes. Yeah. And um, just like the tonality. Like, you could strip a lot of those songs down to, like, um, just like James and his guitar yeah. playing the blues, and, like, it'd feel like that, you know? So, to me, that's the root of the album. Like, not new metal. You can make comparisons, for sure. Yeah. I would never call it a new metal or even, like, an alternative metal album. I agree with you. I was just sort of playing Devil's Advocate there. Because I just remember that album coming out, and... You know, those were like I, the things I remember hearing and still here to this day because people still have to defend this album or hate on this album, depending on what side you're on, 15 years later. Yeah, I almost think a lot of the uh, conceptions around San Anger have become like a meme, right? It's like you think of the meme before you think of what yeah. the album sounds like. It's like yeah. a collection of ideas like, oh, the snare sounds bad, oh, it's new metal, oh, it's... Um, detuned, whatever, like, yeah. you know, to an extent that's true, but like, when you hear it in context, is like, that really what it means? Is that right. really like, what you hear, as opposed to like, what's just been like, repeated over? Right. Do know, we, internet, right? 
stuff. Do you think part of, and you kind of touched upon this already, do you think part of the hate maybe because is it too vulnerable for a metal band to release an album like this for some people? Like if you, I feel like you, like I said, you, you sort of have James purging and he's really just like stripping himself down. And like you said, there's moments where like he sounds sort of weak and fragile. You know, he's done doing like beating my chest like the yeah! You know, like, it's just sort of, like, stripping all that away in, in parts. Also, there is a bit of that, though. It's because, like, he's almost switching characters. Like, a song like Invisible Kid, there are moments where he's being, like, very macho and and then he'll flip the switch from that to being, like, a scared little child. Yeah. Right? And, um... Almost literally, because of the context of the song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, one other example I'd give is, like... The sound of Injustice for All, right? That album to me sounds very brittle and very drained of color because there's not a lot of bass, right? It's like the band mourning the loss of Cliff Burton, which yeah. was, you know, a circumstance out of their control. Um, like the music is quite powerful, but like the sound of it, um, it kind of conflicts with it. And that's what's so fascinating about that album for me. Whereas San Anger is like literally the opposite. It's like Metallica's bassiest record. It's the most detuned. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that Bob Rock um, bass in there. So, like, if Justice sounds drained of life, San Anger's drunk on power. Yeah. It's, like, vulnerable, but also, like, so filled with rage that, like, it's not holding anything back. Yeah. I could see that. And, you know, going back... Very, very metal in, like, how angry it is, but not metal in that it's, like, too much almost to the point of embarrassment. Yeah, and going back to what you said about it being like very bluesy, in a weird way, as alien as this album is and as kind of like one-off as it is when you look in like Metallica's catalog to date, um, it, you can sort of see it as a bridge between the load-reload era and what mm. came after because, like you said, it's taking this more bluesy approach, which I feel like they first really tackled in the mid-90s there, during that era. And now they're kind of streamlining it through kind of their old-school self. Just It's taking a weird new shape. And I feel like mm. by doing so, maybe that led to, you know, them being able to do Death Magnetic and Hardwired down the road, where it's definitely more traditional in terms yeah. of their classic sound. Yeah. And um, I don't think San Anger could ever have been, like, a long-term direction for the band, you know? Not yeah. saying it was, like, destined to fail, but, like, they, I feel like they were always going to come full circle. You know, after, like, a decade and a half of doing what they wanted, not giving the fans, like, what they thought they wanted, so to speak. Like, it was mm-hmm. only natural for them to, like, come full circle and do the thrash thing again. Yeah. yeah. Um, one interesting thing you say in the article that stood out to me, because... Um, if anybody listening has not read this book, go online and see if you can find it. Um, hopefully it's still in print. Um, it's a book called Metallica, This Monster Lives, and it's by Joe Berlinger, who's one of the co-directors of the Some Kind of Monster documentary. And the book really walks you through um, his the process of making the film, um, the process of working with the band and seeing the therapy sessions and recording the album and the release of the... It goes through the whole process, but a, a little bit more behind the scenes than you even see in the documentary at times. 
Um, it's a really fascinating read. And the reason I mention it is because it's been years since I've read this book, um, but weird things stay with me <laughs> over time. And one of the things that stands out to me is that he has a section where he talks about the controversy surrounding St. Anger, and he talks about the sound of the album, and he makes a comparison to uh, Plastic Ono Band album by John Lennon. Um, and which stood out to me because you, just by coincidence, happened to make the same reference in your article. Um, mm. And as somebody who's, uh, you know, I, I, that really stood out to me because that was the second time I was hearing it. And uh, I was just like, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's the same thing. So can you kind of explain your thinking behind comparing those two albums? Sure. So I think um, symbolically they represent something quite similar, right? Like Plastic Owner Band is, I think, I think it's John's second album after leaving the Beatles. Um, I think the first one was with Yoko. Like, it's not a pop album, right? But yeah. um, the story is he went to therapy and worked through a lot of his childhood issues. He did this thing called primal scream therapy, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds like. And that made its way onto the album Plastic Ono Band, which is a very stripped back folky record, but it's John singing like with no inhibitions. Um, uh, a song like Mother, you know, um, yeah, he's literally singing about wanting his mother to come back and bursting mm. into screams. And I find a lot of those themes very similar to St. Anger, like famously James Hetfield has had a lot of mother issues as well. Yeah. Like, I don't think he was literally singing about it on St. Anger, but for example, like uh, on Load, there's a song Mama Said, right. which to me is a very heartfelt song about like overcoming that kind of childhood trauma. It's James, mm -hmm. man, mature, you know, emotionally very stable. St. Anger is like the inverse of that. It's like working out all that energy um, and yeah, purging in a kind of Primal Scream Therapy. Yeah. Except the difference is that um, my Billboard editor wrote about this as well. Like, he made the same comparison. And he said, the difference is that Plastic Owner Band doesn't ask you to sit on the therapist's couch for 75 minutes while <laughs> the singer's yelling at you. <laughs> I think that's a bit of continuity there. It's funny because, yeah. like, a lot of the comparisons I've made to Senanga aren't really in metal at all. Like, were there any else that, like, you thought of? No, I mean, that was the main one that really I read about, and when I really looked at those two albums side by side, I was like, yeah, it's totally like it. it I feel like that's the perfect comparison, because I, when Plastic Ono Band, the album, came out, it was very jarring for people to listen to. And it was, oh my god, my favorite Beatle is screaming, um, saying fuck in a couple places, in a couple songs. And it, it, yeah. it's just truly like a primal, raw purge. And, and, you know, it's not I, a special record at all. No. But what's funny no, is no. that a lot of those songs, like Mother, have aged to the point where now they're classics. You know, like... <laughs> Time. So... They're still powerful. Yeah. So, mm. uh, uh, two things I want to ask you now. What other... Uh, I know you mentioned a couple other albums in your article that you sort of compared to St. Anger, and that 
I, I know the artist, but I'm not overly familiar with the albums, at least from start to finish. So I was wondering if you could build on that a little bit. And also, too, do you think St. Anger gets more appreciated as time passes on, similar to Plastic Ona Band? Okay, interesting. So, Sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm throwing a lot at you. <laughs> oh, good. Um, two that I didn't mention, actually, were um, by Iggy and the Stooges. One is Funhouse, which is... Um, again, like their first record is kind of accessible, like garage, yeah. proto punk. Funhouse is just like really fucking weird. It's bizarre, <laughs> right? Um, it's like the composition of that and a little bit of the mix of raw power, which is a popular, like bluesier record. But famously, it's like one of the most blown out, uh, sorry, blown out mastering albums of all time. I think um, David Bowie famously did the mix and. He turned all the faders up to in the red, so yeah. the entire album is clipping. It's like almost physically painful to listen to. It was the death magnetic of its day. It really was. <laughs> yeah, but it's been it's been beloved, like yeah. both in spite and I think sometimes because of that. Like there've been other mixes, but um, you know people like to love the original for what it was worth. Yeah, I would say those two, and in more modern times. Another one I didn't mention in the article was Slipknot's Iowa, which is 2001. Um, you know, they already had had some commercial success with their first album, but Iowa is just total nihilism, right? It's catchy, but again, it's like the band kind of wanting to burn everything down. Right. Um, it's like one of the weirdest records ever to sell. Like, I don't know was it like 200,000 copies the first week or something? Like, it wasn't number one. Yeah. But, like, during the peak of the middle era, like, it's amazing that people embraced a record as weird as that. Yeah. I think maybe it's a little because they were conditioned to expect it from Slipknot. Yeah. At the time. It's a little bit popular than St. Anger, but not all the way through. Yeah. Um, so it's that, and <clears throat> most recently, um, Kanye West's Jesus, which is also a complete left turn for Kanye. Like, he was making quite poppy music in the years before that. And Jesus, um, like, it opens with this growling, like, bizarre synth that sounds like <laughs> nothing else in its discography. Yeah. And the whole album is just pummeling you with beats and, like, bizarre sound design. You have, like, weird sounds in your headphone mix panning from left to right. It's him kind of, like, trying to burn down his image. He's taking, like, what everything... Um, everything that people hate about him the most and like embracing it he's saying this is me it's like my heel turn and by the <laughs> end it's almost so like extreme that he's redeemed in a sense yeah. it's like purged it so much that like whatever he does the next thing can't possibly be as dark right and so i think about sending it the same way yeah um one last one was um lana del rey's ultraviolence which i think 2014 you know she'd broken through as a pop star but she made a very very dark very bluesy um very very self-loathing record that's similar to kanye like takes everything you hate about her and like embraces it you know she's saying like i'm the villain yeah now correct me if i'm wrong but uh, those albums similar in ideas similar in uh, sound in some ways or in, in approach rather maybe is a better way yeah, to say it but um uh, like was the Kanye West out Kanye West album do you think as jarring for his fan base as St. Anger was to Metallica's fan base 
Because I'm not, I, I think, don't, I, I don't, I didn't get the impression that it was, but I'm um, like a very casual for, Kanye West person, so. Sure, I think for some of his fan base, like <clears throat> some of them found it very confronting, but a lot of, I think a lot of them, understood it, on day one, or at least you yeah. know, gave time to, took more time to grapple with it. Yeah. Like I don't think anyone when it first came out was saying this is Kanye's best album, but I think a lot of people maybe have come around like mm-hmm. i'm i would say it's like either number one or number two for me and mm. coming back to your other question about will san anger be reappreciated um it's hard to say like i don't think it'll ever be broadly considered a masterpiece or even like um you know a flawed and ambi- i mean it kind of is considered like flawed and ambitious but yeah um the general sense is that it's a failure like a straight up yeah. failure. I don't think that'll change. But if you look at things like YouTube comments and Twitter, I feel like with a lot of the younger audience, those preconceptions are starting to fall away. Not just like if you grew up with the album. Yeah. But, um, I think people are really like engaging with it on a musical level, which is cool. Like you don't have to love it. It's a hard album to love. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of power in the fact that it's hated. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be cool to hear, like, to see more people just, like, hearing it on its own terms, you know. That's, like, all you can ask for. Yeah, I and I've been trying to encourage certain people who I know are Metallica fans or whatever. It sort of, like, got that album when it came out and gave up on it. I'm kind of encouraging them, like, go back and listen to it. And I'm, I'm not saying you're going to, like, have it in heavy rotation. But I think if you go into it with kind of a fresh set of ears and an open mind, especially if you already kind of know what the expectation is, you're going to hear a lot of great riffs and a lot of powerful songs, you know? And a lot of Um, just great performances. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like they were really firing on all cylinders during San Anger. Yeah. Like, it's a a strange chemistry, but to me it works, you know? Yeah. And I think that's all my article was trying to do was to um, add a bit of like historical context to all these things about San Anger that don't seem traditionally metal and to like maybe give a way in like emotionally as well if you find yeah. the experience of listening to it like baffling like so many people have yeah. I just hope that like 15 years since like the conversation about it has become like better not worse you know right <laughs> Yeah, like, are we still talking about the tin cans now, like, after all this time? Surely there's, like, something else to say about it. (laughs) I know, and I, but, you know, going back to your point, and people really just latch on to these certain things, you know, like this, the tin can drum, as they say, you know, but, like... They're not wrong for doing so. No, and I think, I, 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 it's a flawed album. It's an imperfect album, but I think that's part of the intent is to release, um, like, I, I think, I, I think that, yes, they cared about the songs, but, like, the songs were almost, uh, they cared about, like, writing a great song to a lesser extent than just purging and just, like, releasing on this yeah. album. And I'm not saying that it's the songs not... are, that there's not great songs in the album or those songs aren't good, because I think that they are. I just think, compared to other albums like they weren't trying to write the greatest song they were like this is just i'm feeling it let's do it yeah it was more about the atmosphere than like each individual composition on its own terms 
you know. Totally. And um, I had a great point that I was going to make, and now I, similar to you before, I completely lost my train of thought. But I, I did find, I don't want to put you on the spot here. Hold on, I'm finding it, I'm finding it. I did find a tweet that you sent out that I thought maybe you could... I made many tweets about Zeninga. <laughs> What's that? I've, I've made many tweets about Zeninga for like years and years. <laughs> Which that I, was I, almost therapeutic for me. I love following you on Twitter because I see everything uh, up from... Uh, I see everything from Kim Kardashian to Grindcore. So... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really runs strange. the gamut, you know? But uh, the, the tweet is... Uh, you, wrote, you wrote on Twitter, the thing about great pop music is you have to worship the form before you can subvert it. True of everyone from Madonna to Britney, Kylie, Gaga, Beyonce, Kate Bush, Rihanna, um, and you go on and with several others. You can say even Radiohead, really. But then you followed up with the second tweet, Metallica did it backwards. Yeah, I think that's very rare. Um, if you look at the start of the career, I mean, Killamo is kind of like, Punky, fast, thrash metal. Um, Ride, Puppets, and Justice to Me. I see it as very classically influenced albums. Yeah. I feel like that's Cliff Burton's influence, because I know, I don't think it's a big factor in like James's life. He played classical piano, but it's the way that they would put together songs as like classical suites that would flow in and out of each other. Yeah. Like Master of Puppets the song is like really complex if you try to write down the actual song structure. Yeah. It's memory. Ah, but um, from the transition from Justice to Black, uh, Metallica went from that kind of traditional metal, hard rock flowing song structures into pop song structures. And like this is something that's not very well defined, I think. It's not just like verse about verses and choruses. To me, a pop song is like a song that emphasizes the vocal melody and the chords, but also has very like a lot of very abrupt structural shifts. So like, it's not about riffs that flow into each other. It's about like a verse like slamming into a chorus. You know, very dramatic like dynamic shifts. Yeah. Um, and um, even a song like End of Sandman has that long intro, but it doesn't like it doesn't flow in the same way as like a master of puppets does it's yeah. like very abrupt um and you know a lot of that is like about pop radio wanting to stand on a pop radio making the biggest like impacts that you can in like three or four minutes but when i say metallica did that in reverse it's like it's not just a sonic thing it's about populism it's wanting to write songs that appeal to as many people as possible but without like watering down the content or the mm -hmm. heaviness which i think is very 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 difficult um totally there's only a handful of like metal bands that have ever successfully done that in history just because it kind of runs counter to the idea of metal as like this kind of classical yeah thing. and i think so there's for a metallica to do... go yeah, ahead for metallica to do that was very it's a very rare thing, and especially on that level, because, you know, the Black Album is the highest selling album of the last 27 years yeah. in the US. It's crazy. So it's really enjoyed. Like, it's still, you know, a touchstone for people. Yeah. I think that's something quite special about that, because people still call it a sellout album. Um, 
Like, I don't agree it, with that. It's selling I out. Think it's selling out every copy, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like they made the mainstream come to them. Yeah. I think that's real. Yeah. And um, Metallica, yeah, grew into a style of songwriting that they'd never done before, which is, yeah, very, very rare. And I think fascinating. I wish, like, more metal bands would try it. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of bands that did try it around the time of the Black Album. Like, you saw Anthrax kind of shift gears and Megadeth sort of shift gears. You know, a lot of those uh, uh, big four. Slayer, not really to that extent, but uh, definitely Anthrax and Megadeth and a handful of others, but with very mixed results. And I, I, like, I, I, you know, Megadeth in terms of, uh, let's call it for lack of a better word, pop thrash <laughs> uh, yeah. they, they, they had uh probably the second most success and i'm yeah. not belittling the success they did have during that time period but it i mean it was just so far behind metallica as everybody yeah. else was and i think the really impressive thing to me about metallica is that they uh like you said not only did it backwards like, they were like, this comes naturally to me. Playing a really fast riff in 5-4 time and it's shifting to this time signature and doing that and creating all these complex song structures, that ended up becoming natural to them. And then it was a new musical challenge for them to say, let's write a song based around one riff. Absolutely. Which is basically what Edge of Salmon is, you know? And it's... Yeah. It's it's like two chords in that song. Yeah. It's like and, E and F sharp. <laughs> yeah. And but, like I have another song that does that, but they did it kind of just as like to test themselves. Like, can we do this without like outside songwriters? Can we mm. do this without? Um, can we just do it on our own, our own way? And they did it, and they did it for a very long period of time. If you look between, um, you know, Black Album through even I Disappear, like right before Saint Anger came out. Those are a long string of hits. Sandman, True, Unforgiven, Rome, Nothing Else Matters, Until It Sleeps, King Nut. Like, this, that's just off two albums. I didn't even name all the hits. It's yeah. insane. Hmm. Um, part of what my piece was saying that is that, like, it's not likely there'll ever be another Metallica. Um, yeah. For cultural reasons and musical reasons. Um, partly because pop radio, like, rarely even plays rock music these days, let alone metal, like, yeah. but also because, um, in a musical sense, like, Metallica represents a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? They're one of the few bands that have influenced everyone in metal, like, from, like, the poppiest to the most extreme, Metallica have influenced you, but in different ways, like, like, everyone agrees on the 80s albums, everyone loves yeah. them, but... Um, Black, I think, to a lot of people, is another line in the sand. It's saying, um, I think people equate the Black Album's commercial success with artistic failure, as if those two things are always linked. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think that's always true. Um, certainly, like what followed, Load and Reload, are not as artistically successful. Certainly, like New Metal, which is a form of pop metal. A lot of that hasn't aged very well. Yeah. But to me, metal has really gone back underground after the death of new metal. 
and like the rise of traditional metal and like the new wave of American heavy metal in like 2004, 05, metals like, I think at one point metal was like a counterculture. It like existed in the mainstream, but it was kind of like a, a fuck you to like the traditions of mm-hmm. rock music and hard rock, like especially Metallica for a while. But um, I think a lot of bands don't want to, the majority of metal bands these days don't want to compete on that level. They want to be like the greatest band to like a thousand, ten thousand people. And I really yeah. respect that, like really great at their craft, but there are very few bands that have the ambition to write then nothing else matters to make their black album. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting um, for better or worse. Do you you think we will see a time, just your opinion, so I agree with you, there will never be another Metallica. I think there's a lot of factors that play into that. I think um, metal in general has just changed, the culture has changed, um, the industry has changed, Um, but will there be a time where we see another resurgence of metal and will will it emerge from the underground again? Or rock in general. Because you could argue that just rock bands are mostly underground or it's a very niche thing nowadays. Where it seems like hip-hop, country, you know, those are really dominating the airwaves. And like you said, it's hard to even find rock radio stations. I live in a... I, I live in Connecticut, but I live right outside New York City. So I get a lot of, you know, I'm in a major market for radio. And we finally... Got an alternative rock station again after years of nothing. And some of the alternative rock that they play, quote unquote alternative rock, is I would say not bad songs or bad artists, but it's a little bit questionable in terms of if I would label it as rock. It's very polished these days. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I never want to say that rock is dead or metal is dead i think that's silly like there's always a lot of great music being produced absolutely it's i don't know it's hard to say it's not impossible for rock to have like that kind of cultural resurgence but i don't think the culture exists i think that a lot of people have taken like a lot of the best songwriters and most talented musicians have learned i want to say like the wrong lessons from the Black Album, you know, the Black, what the Black Album represents. Like, it should be, you know, hey, you're a great band, take this leap of faith. Um, you can streamline, streamline your songwriting without making it worse. You can appeal yeah. to people and there's, there's no shame in that. Yeah. Like, it's a good thing. But a lot of people have, so many bands have taken the opposite approach. Um, and, no, I don't really... It's hard to say, because the pop and the underground have really never been more separate than, like, rock. Yeah. Even if you look like, the <clears throat> 70s, like, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, like, that was pop music. Yeah. And I think, too, though, part of it, too, is probably just the metal culture itself, where I feel like a lot of metal bands want to cater to the fan base. And I'm not saying that's even a bad thing. I mean, of course people want to make their fans happy, but... They want to cater to the fan base, so they're like, we're never going to do anything that could make people call us sellout. That could make people think, oh, we're turning pop. 
It, but I think it's got to take a band like Metallica to just be like, no, fuck that, we're doing this. And I'm not saying there's been no other bands that have attempted, they just have not had that same effect on people. Yeah, for they have, a variety of reasons. But. Yeah, I don't think any have aimed for it on the same level. Yeah. Um, I wrote in my piece that there have been a lot of like crossover metal bands that have been labeled the next big thing in the last 15 years. You name like everyone from like Trivium to In Flames, Lamb of God, Opeth, like Gajura, yeah, you know, all across the world, right? And all of them are influenced by Metallica, but none of them have made their Black Album. None of them have like ever made this in anger, nor will they ever. <laughs> right? And that's significant to me. That's significant to me because like yeah. I think a lot of great art is about taking risks. Like, not just to build your audience, but to, like, subvert your own music to, yeah. like, change and grow and mature. Can you think of... Think you... Go ahead. So I'll go ahead. Um, I think if you're, never willing, if you're never willing to take huge risks, you'll never fall flat on your face. But, like, yeah. you'll never soar either. Like, you'll never be the biggest band in the world. Yeah. Either. And like, I'm a songwriter too. Um, like, I make pop music, but it's influenced by all sorts of things. But like, I can't imagine not wanting to have the biggest audience possible. Yeah. And I, I don't really see that in metal culture these days. Um, you know, for better or worse. And I, and I don't think it's ever truly been there, which is why the Black Album receives such a backlash. Because I think uh, a lot of metal fans feel so passionate and want to have their own niche little thing outside of what everybody else likes. It's, it's like, think of it like high school terms where you're like this, like, dorky little metalhead, and you got, you know, like, a little group of dorky metalhead friends, and now this frat boy, this jock, you know, all of a sudden they're listening to Inter Salmon. You're like, no, that's my fucking band. We're two completely different people, yeah. you know? And, and I think that's... So metal fans sometimes try to force it underground, and want to keep it separate from everything else. And I feel like a lot of bands probably just follow that lead and don't have that ambition. And it, that's okay. But they don't have that same ambition to be like, no, we're going to be the biggest goddamn thing in the world. Yeah, and if you look at pre-Black Album too, like there are a lot more examples of commercial success. Like Black Sabbath sold a lot of records. Yeah. Um, Judas Priest, like Bridge Steel, that's their Black Album. Yeah, they streamlined this. Um, Iron Maiden were like always, I feel like in the conversation in the UK. Yeah, like wasn't I think Daughter to the Slaughter in the '90s was like a number one hit there. Yeah, I feel like Maiden's like kind of the Maiden's kind of like the exception in the states at least, where it's like there's songs that people know just because of time, but like they've never had like that true like huge MTV radio hit. They just somehow keep on producing albums and selling out arenas, and they just keep on going and going and going. And now there's songs that are like Number of the Beast. A lot of people know that song, but people who know that song, it's not because they turned on FM radio and heard it, unless if it was at like 2 in the morning, you know? So it's a, a different really kind of success. Uh, here's, yeah, here's a weird comparison I thought of the other day. <laughs> Iron Maiden are more successful than like jennifer lopez if you think about it <laughs> yeah been around like what two or three times as long 
we don't think of them as a pop band, but I think like they're very accessible. You know, yeah. It just depends on like the metrics by which you measure success. Like J Lo, you know, successful pop star, but like she doesn't have a cult following. Like she's not going to be touring in another like twenty years. Right. So like, you know, maybe success isn't such a dirty word after all for metal. Yeah. Right? Well, and like there are a lot of metal bands. I think too to play devil's advocate to what I said before about a certain percentage of metal fans just wanting to force everything underground is that metal fans on the flip side are also very loyal in some ways too, which I think is why when you have a band like Metallica, think of all the things they've done to piss people off from releasing a ballad on ride the lightning to the black album, to cutting their hair, to Napster, to St. Anger, to Lulu. Yet here they are, in 2018, they're still selling out stadiums and arenas. Their albums are selling very well for modern day albums. They, you know, they still have a very dedicated fan base. Case in point, there's this podcast <laughs> and a couple <laughs> others out there just about this band. So it's a very rabid, loyal fan base. But I think you get either you get either side with the metalheads, and maybe that's the thing with any genre of music. But I feel like. Metalheads are just so much more vocal about their opinions. <laughs> yeah, very, very tribal. Yeah. Very tribal. And so I wonder, I just find it interesting, though, despite all that the hits they've taken, you know, like Shoot, uh, shoot Me Again from St. Anger, despite all the hits, they just keep on going and going and going and somehow, are, you know, are still irrelevant successful band this you know for a lot of other bands it's the backlash that saint anger or lulu got that that would have put them put them out of commission you know it was retired <laughs> yeah. Shame. Yeah. but i find it interesting and i and i wanted to bring this up because um i had clint wells on from uh he's the co-host of another metallica podcast metal up your podcast he's also uh, a musician, and we were just talking about, you know, pop, pop music is a dirty word sometimes, I think, especially in metal. But so many of the big bands, I feel like, are truly, just make truly great pop music, or have at least at various parts of, uh, in their career. And, you know, in Metallica, it's no exception. It, it, it's in the name. If you're popular, you're pop. Mm. You know? Yeah, it's like, it's a musical genre, but it's also a state of mind. You know? Right. And it, it, but they just always interest me, too, because they've, like you said before, they've always sort of done it on their own terms. And, uh, and, and when you tweeted that out about how they worked backwards, I was like, I never really thought of it that way before, but you absolutely nailed it. It's really interesting how uh, they've sort of unfolded their career and done it their their way, because it's such a strange way. I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head who worked in that way, at least on the same level as them. Can you? Putting you on the spot. <laughs> Making you think hard. I want to say not in metal. You could even say, like, uh... I mean, yeah, Corn Corn are a good example actually, because they they sounded incredibly uncommercial on their first few records and like became, you know, got played on pop radio like almost despite themselves. 
Um, That's true. Yeah, they did it on their own terms. Um, outside middle. I don't know. Like, there's got to be someone in like punk rock or like even in the '60s, like the entire counterculture movement. Yeah. Um, like, it, it didn't start on pop radio. They kind of forced their way in. The thing they broke is, down the door. The thing that's funny about punk rock to me is that, like you said before, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it, it's very accessible pop music. Like, The Ramones, I Want to Be Your Boyfriend, and, like, they're really just old-school rock and roll songs that are super catchy and super poppy. And that was sort of, uh, you know, one of the ideas behind it was, like, you know, we're tired of these 10-minute guitar solos. Let's just write a short, sweet, catchy song and get on with ourselves. (laughs) And even The Misfits, which is, like, a largely not commercial band in so many ways, very raw production, very dark imagery. A lot of their songs are very pop-inflected and just very catchy. Yeah, they're iconic, like, literally. Yeah. You can see t-shirts everywhere. They mean yeah. something. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've been going a little bit for over an hour, and I, I, I Richard, I'm not going to lie to you, I could talk to you forever i could babble on about metallica and babylon about saint anger um i would love to have you back on the show if you'd be willing to come Likewise. on at some point sure. awesome maybe even a track by track one of these days you know i would love to <laughs> see i want this to kind of be an overview of saint Anger because you have a very interesting perspective on the album and i would love to i want to do a series at some point like a three-part series where we go track by track on the album and then dive into, have another episode about some kind of monster, and have another one, maybe where we look at, like, this monster lives, and kind of fill in some of the blanks, or something like that, so if, if I get to that point, I would love to have you on for all of it, or some of it, or whatever your, your busy schedule allows, but I had a blast talking, man, this was, it, can you tell everybody, again, where we can find the article, and I'll, I'll definitely um, include a link to it as well, but... Sure. So if you Google um, Red Bull St. Anger, it'll be the top result. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Richard, R-I-C-H-A-O-D. Um, I tweet a lo- about a lot of weird things. <laughs> <laughs> he does. I, I, I literally see tweets about wrestling. And then 10 minutes later, a tweet about uh, Ariana Grande and then Kardashian and then some grindcore band that I've never even heard of, and then St. Anger, and then Kid Rock. I'm like, this guy's all over the place. I love it. (laughs) I I make a lot of weird pop metal comparisons. Like, I've been tweeting over and over, like, Ariana Grande should front Dream Theater. That's my idea. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, to me, like, everything, it's all connected. Like, everything kind of in my writing and my worldview... And like hopefully my music as well. So, do you have a place where people can find your music? Not yet. No. Um, so I am in a pop duo called L, E L L E, and I you know co-write and produce. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll be putting out a debut single like later this year. Just got to cut some vocals. But That's awesome. Well, when you when it's out there for the world to hear, please let me know, and I will definitely share it out with. The Metallicast Militia, as I like to call them. It won't be that metal to start off with, but, like, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve, so. <laughs> well, that's fine. I, I think I, I, I think that some of the audience will 
uh, still appreciate it, and, and I think some will become fans of it. Um, I, I like to think that, um, despite me being a, such a metalhead naysayer at times this episode, that I like to think that there's more metalheads out there like me that are open-minded and willing to give things a chance. And I think if you're if you've stuck with Metallica through all this, and you're still a diehard, you gotta be pretty open-minded. Absolutely. Can I leave you with a very weird comparison to end on? Uh, I would like nothing more. Okay, so um, Madonna is the Lars Ulrich of pop and vice versa. Because if you think about it, both people, not like an enormous amount of natural, like God-given technical skill, yeah. but to me, they took what they had and took it further than like almost anyone in the genre. Like Madonna, wow. like yeah. an octave and a half vocal range. Lars, um, you know, everyone can play circles around him, but, like, it's the songwriting and the chemistry yeah, that matters, yeah. you know? And the brain. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm contemplating... I was just going to ch- call this album either Richard S. Heat or St. Anger, and I'm thinking I might just change that to the title of this episode, because if that doesn't get your attention, yeah. what does? Yeah. Also, they're both great business people, so... That's true. I mean, whatever... Best in the so- genre. Whenever somebody shits on Lars, I go, you understand that Metallica would not exist without him, right? And I think Absolutely. he's, I think as a player, he's underrated because he has a very, like you said, he's not technically the most efficient drummer, but he has such a signature sound that, like, if you had Vinnie Paul playing drums for Metallica, Vinnie Paul was, R.I.P., was a, uh, you know, great technical metal drummer, it would not be the same thing. If you had Dave Lombardo playing drums for Metallica, it would not be the same thing. And they would have... You literally hit. Yeah. I, 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 where, yeah, Dave and Joey Jordison took over. Yeah, yeah. I think with Dave it didn't sound right. Like with Joey it was really good. But yeah. it's still not the same, you know. Yeah, and those are two... space in the music with love. And, right, and those are two very great versatile drummers too, I think. You know, like Lombardo will do Slayer... And then he'll do some weird ass stuff with Mike Patton, you know, and uh, it, but uh, like you said, but Lars just has a feel. It's all about attitude with them, and I think yeah. too um, that's why we have an album like Saint Anger. That going back to what we were saying before, without going tangent, just to sort of wrap it up, that album is just all about feel and attitude. Mm. Absolutely. Can you say that quote one more time about Madonna and Lars? <laughs> um, I'll say it the other way around. Lars okay. Ulrich is the Madonna of metal. You heard it there first, ladies and gentlemen. I am... That's a comp- <laughs> Tell everybody where they can find you again on social media. Sure. On Twitter at, at Richard, R-I-C-H-A-O-D. Follow him if you want a diverse lineup of tweets. Um... <laughs> I am at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please download, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on iTunes. If you leave anything less than five stars, I will track you down, and I will seek and destroy you. I guess, well, if I track you down, I guess it's already the seeking part, right? So I don't have to seek you after I punted you down. You get the idea. Anyways, join the Metallicast Militia. Download, subscribe, and review this episode and all other episodes will be on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, YouTube, our home site, fansonexperts.com, and basically anywhere else you can find podcasts. Um, 
As always, I like to end with a cover song in tribute to Richard being my very gracious uh, guest host. Um, I believe it or not, Richard, I found a cover of the song Saint Anger on YouTube. Ooh, yeah. And it was not like a, uh, you know, like a guitar cover or like a remix, like, you know, listen to what the album sound like with right drums or, uh, you know, tuned up to E standard or whatever. It was, it's an actual cover. Uh, I apologize to this man I'll never meet if uh, I butcher his name. I believe it's pronounced Yves. Y-B-E-S. Does that sound right? Yves? 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 Let's go with Yves. You're, you're yeah. a writer and smarter than me. As I said, you make me sound articulate. So, Eves Paquet. So, I'll spell for you. Y-V-E-S is the first name. Last name, P-A-Q-U-E-T. I would guess it's Paquet. Okay. Paquet? Eves Paquet. Yeah. That sounds better than Eves Paquet. <laughs> My fans, the next fans. Exactly. Thank you for the plug. Um and uh, this is a very interesting cover of the song. It's heavily edited down. It's only 3 minutes, 45 seconds. But it's just the man playing on piano and singing. So it's a very interesting cover. Um, it reminded me um, more of a, uh, like a jazz pop cover than um, a metal cover. So check it out. Um, until next time, ladies and gentlemen. Met up your ass, you're here!
thank you so much for coming on, man. Such a pleasure. Yeah, anytime. As soon <laughs> as soon as I read your article, because like I said, I do my nerdy Google search for like news results. I saw it pop up and I read it and I was like, who wrote this? And I, like I looked you up on uh, Twitter and I was like, all right, follow. And I was like, I wonder if I can get this guy on to to talk about this because I feel like when I was reading it, you know, just a lot of uh, I was like, yes, yes, I agree with this. I agree with that. I agree with this. And uh, I felt validated for after 15 years of defending that album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had a few responses like that that are really affirming and a few that, like, rejected the premise altogether. Like, yeah. how dare you, you know, write about Xanathos? <laughs> <laughs> you take a good or bad. Yeah, I mean, like, um, such is the age of the internet. When I first the article, um, I was almost, like, still too close to it still yeah. close still like too close to that purging so like i couldn't talk then i was like in a daze so you know it's good that we took our time to get here if um about that book <laughs> oh. um yes yeah, so um by the way I even though I, not to interrupt you but even though i said goodbye i might just include hmm. this in the episode <laughs> so oh, continue no, right. <laughs> yeah just banter, like a tag on the end yeah um i've wanted to write a 33 and a third book about yeah. Metallica. So that's a series that um, they cover a lot of classic albums. And so like each book is like um, uh, maybe like 50,000 word, 50,000 words by a different author on like a different album. And there's yeah. some really cool ones. Like there's one on Celine Dion that's like incredible. Um, there's one on Master of Reality that's like a novella about like a high, a high schooler like in a mental ward and he gets through hmm. it by like listening to Black Sabbath. It's amazing. But um, yeah, I've wanted to pitch one on St. Anger and like now that I've written 7,500 words and like not gotten all my thoughts out, you know, maybe it's time to pitch the book, you know? Like right, I know someone yeah. who pitched one on Lulu and it was rejected, but you know, who knows? Well, if you, if you feel up to the task, when I get to my Lulu episode, and whenever I, I don't have any plan, so at any point when we do it, maybe you would come on and talk that album more. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, um, my thoughts are not nearly as coherent on that album. <laughs> well, that's okay because neither are mine, and I feel like it's a lot. Uh, it's a less coherent album. <laughs> yeah. I listen to it almost every eighteen months, like on the dot. And I expect something completely like different every time. Yeah. And every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I like the last half an hour. <laughs> um, just like no one ever got to the last two songs, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely an interesting listen. But um, thank you again. Uh, since I'm going to put this probably on as a tag, I did forget to plug, Richard, I'm not sure if you know this, I have a Metallicast hotline. I'm pushing it. Nobody's... Nobody's called yet, <laughs> except except uh, uh, we had a we had a Jimmy, which sounded a lot like a James Hatfield. We had uh, a Dave, who's was I think was supposed to be Dave Mustaine, but he sounded like Larry David in a few spots. Um, so, but if you have a if you have an impression, if you have a, a shout out, if you have a comment, if you have a question, feel free to call the Metallicast hotline two zero three five four eight. 0609. It's a Google number, so anywhere you have Wi-Fi, you can call. Um, 
either through the laptop or through your phone. Leave a message, and I'd love to play it on the air and get your thoughts. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way. Email. Is email the old-fashioned way already? I don't know. <laughs> Metallicast at fans.express.com. Follow me on social media at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow Richard S.C. on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Are you on Instagram or anywhere else? Um, I'm private. I will resurface one day. Okay. So we'll plug your Twitter? Sure. It's at Richard, R-I-C-H-A-O-D. And you've heard it three times now. So if you don't follow him, he will seek and destroy you. <laughs> there Sorry we go. about the accent. <laughs> I, I like the accent. It makes you sound a lot more polished than my dumb American accent. So, <laughs> All right. We'll wrap it up now. That'll be the end of the tag. <laughs> but thank you again, sir. I had a, a really... Fans not experts.